Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice J, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, The Dog, by Banjo Patterson. The dog is a member of society who likes to have his day's work, and who does it more conscientiously than most human beings. A dog always looks as if he ought to have a pipe in his mouth and a black bag for his lunch, and then he would go quite happily to office every day. A dog without work is like a man without work, a nuisance to himself and everybody else. People who live about town and keep a dog to give the children hydatids and to keep the neighbors awake at night imagine that the animal is fulfilling his destiny. All town dogs, fancy dogs, show dogs, lap dogs, and other dogs with no work to do should be abolished. It is only in the country that a dog has any justification for his existence. The old theory that animals have only instinct, not reason, to guide them is knocked endways by the dog. A dog can reason as well as a human being on some subjects and better on others. And the best reasoning dog of all is the sheepdog. The sheepdog is a professional artist with a pride in his business. Watch any drover's dogs bringing sheep into the yards. How thoroughly they feel their responsibility, and how very annoyed they get if a stray dog with no occupation wants them to stop and fool about. They snap at him and hurry off, as much as to say, You go about your idleness. Don't you see this is my busy day? Sheepdogs are followers of Thomas Carlyle. They hold that the only happiness for a dog in this life is to find his work and to do it. The idle, dilettante, non-working, aristocratic dog they have no use for. The training of a sheepdog for his profession begins at an early age. The first thing is to take him out with his mother and let him see her working. He blunders lightheartedly, frisking along in front of the horse, and his owner tries to ride over him and generally succeeds. It is amusing to see how that knocks all the gas out of a puppy. And with what a humble air he falls to the rear and glues himself to the horse's heels, scarcely daring to look to the right or to the left for fear of committing some other breach of etiquette. He has had his first lesson, to keep behind the horse until he is wanted. Then he watches the old slut work and then is allowed to go with her round the sheep. And if he shows any disposition to get out of hand and frolic about, the old lady will bite him sharply to prevent his interfering with her work. By degrees, slowly, like any other professional, he learns his business. He learns to bring sheep after a horse simply at a wave of the hand, to force the mob up to a gate where they can be counted or drafted, to follow the scent of lost sheep, and to drive sheep through a town without any master. One dog going on ahead to block the sheep from turning off into by-streets, 
while the other drives them on from the rear. How do they learn all these things? Dogs for show work are taught painstakingly by men who are skilled in handling them. But, after all, they teach themselves more than the men teach them. It looks as if the acquired knowledge of generations were transmitted from dog to dog. The puppy, descended from a race of sheepdogs, starts with all his faculties directed towards the working of sheep. He is half-educated as soon as he is born. He can no more help working sheep than a born musician can help being musical. It is bred in him. If he can't get sheep to work, he will work a fowl. Often and often, one can see a collie pup painstakingly and carefully driving a bewildered old hen into a stable or a stockyard or any other enclosed space on which he has fixed his mind. How does he learn to do that? He didn't learn it at all. The knowledge was born with him. The dog has been educated or has educated himself. He enjoys his work, but very few dogs like work in the yards. The sun is hot, the dust rises in clouds, and there is nothing to do but bark, 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 which is all very well for learners and amateurs, but it's beneath the dignity of the true professional sheepdog. When they are hoarse with barking and nearly choked with dust, the men lose their tempers and swear at them, and throw clods of earth at them and sing out to them, Speak up, blast you! Then the dogs suddenly decide that they have done enough for the day. Watching their opportunity, they silently steal over the fence and hide in any cool place they can find. After a while, the men notice that hardly any are left, and operations are suspended while a great hunt is made into outlying pieces of cover. The dogs are sure to be found lying low and looking as guilty as so many thieves. A clutch at the scruff of the neck, a kick in the ribs, and they are hauled out of their hiding places and accompany their masters to the yard frolicking about and pretending that they are quite delighted to be going back and only hid in those bushes out of sheer thoughtlessness. He is a champion hypocrite, is the dog. Dogs, like horses, have very keen intuition. They know when the men around them are frightened, though they may not know the cause. In a great Queensland strike, when the shearers attacked and burnt Dagworth shed, some rifle volleys were exchanged. The air was full of human electricity, each man giving out waves of fear and excitement. Mark now the effect it had on the dogs. They were not in the fighting, nobody fired at them, and nobody spoke to them. But every dog left his master, left the sheep, and went away to the homestead about six miles off. There wasn't a dog about the shed next day after the fight. The noise of the rifles had not frightened them because... They were well accustomed to that. The same thing happened constantly with horses in the South African War. A loose horse would feed contentedly while our men were firing, but when our troops were being fired at, the horses became uneasy and the loose ones would trot away. The excitement of the men communicated itself to them. Dogs have an amazing sense of responsibility. When there are sheep to be worked, an old slut who has young puppies may be greatly exercised in her mind whether she should go out or not. On the one hand, she does not care about leaving the puppies. 
On the other, she feels that she really ought to go rather than allow the sheep to be knocked about by those learners. Hesitatingly, with many a look behind her, she trots out after the horses and the other dogs. An impassioned appeal from the head boundary rider, Go back home, will yer? is treated with the contempt it deserves. She goes out to the yards, works, perhaps half the day, and then slips quietly under the fences and trots off home, contented. They say a dog's life is a great life. You're always happy to see your master. You always wait patiently for him. Every day is the best day ever. Let's continue our dog stories with Memoirs of a Yellow Dog by O. Henry. I don't suppose it will knock any of you people off your perch to read a contribution from an animal. Mr. Kipling and a good many others have demonstrated the fact that animals can express themselves in remunerative English. And no magazine goes to press nowadays without an animal story in it, except the old-style monthlies that are still running pictures of Brian and the Mount Pele horror. But you needn't look for any stuck-up literature in my piece, such as Beru the Bear and Snakeu the Snake and Tamanu the Tiger. Talk in the jungle books. A yellow dog that spent most of its life in a cheap New York flat, sleeping in a corner on an old sateen underskirt, the one she spilled port wine on at the Lady Longshoreman's banquet, mustn't be expected to perform any tricks with the art of speech. I was born a yellow pup. Date... Locality, pedigree, and weight unknown. The first thing I can recollect, an old woman had me in a basket at Broadway in 23rd, trying to sell me to a fat lady. Old Mother Hubbard was boosting me to beat the band as a genuine Pomeranian Hambletonian Red Irish Cochin China Stoke Poges Fox Terrier. The fat lady chased a V around among the samples of grow grain flannelette in her shopping bag till she cornered it and gave up. From that moment, I was a pet. A mama's own wootsie squidlums. Say, gentle reader, did you ever have a 200-pound woman breathing a flavor of camembert cheese and pot d'espagne pick you up and warp her nose all over you, remarking all the time in an Emma Eames tone of voice, Oh, and woodlum doodlum woodlum toodlum itsy bitsy squidlums? From a pedigreed yellow pup, I grew up to be an anonymous yellow cur, looking like a cross between an angora cat and a box of lemons. But my mistress never tumbled. She thought that the two primeval pups that Noah chased into the ark were but a collateral branch of my ancestors. It took two policemen to keep her from entering me at the Madison Square Garden for the Siberian Bloodhound Prize. I'll tell you about that flat. The house was the ordinary thing in New York, paved with Parian marble in the entrance hall and cobblestones above the first floor. Our flat was three, well, not flights, climbs up. My mistress rented it unfurnished and put in the regular things. 1903 antique unhosted parlor set, oil chromo of geishas in a Harlem tea house, rubber plant, and husband. By serious, there was a biped I felt sorry for. He was a little man with sandy hair and whiskers a good deal like mine. Henpecked? Well, 
Toucans and flamingos and pelicans all had their bills in them. He wiped the dishes and listened to my mistress tell about the cheap, ragged things the lady with the squirrel-skin coat on the second floor hung out on her line to dry. And every evening while she was tea-eating supper, she made him take me out on the end of a string for a walk. If men knew how women pass the time when they are alone, they'd never marry. Laura lean jibby, peanut brittle, a little almond cream on the neck muscles, dishes unwashed, half an hour's talk with the ice man, reading a package of old letters, a couple of pickles and two bottles of malt extract, one hour peeking through a hole in the window shade into the flat across the air shaft. That's about all there is to it. Twenty minutes before time for him to come home from work, she straightens up the house, fixes her rat so it won't show, and gets out a lot of sewing for a ten-minute bluff. I led a dog's life in that flat. Most all day, I lay there in my corner, watching that fat woman kill time. I slept sometimes and had pipe dreams about being out chasing cats in the basements and growling at old ladies with mittens, as a dog was intended to do. Then she would pounce upon me with a lot of that driveling poodle palaver and kiss me on the nose. But what could I do? A dog can't chew clothes. I began to feel very sorry for hubby, dog my cats, if I didn't. We looked so much alike that people noticed it when we went out. So we shook the streets that Morgan's cab drives down and took to climbing the piles of last December's snow on the streets where cheap people live. One evening... When we were thus promenading, and I was trying to look like a prize St. Bernard, and the old man was trying to look like he wouldn't have murdered the first organ grinder he heard play Mendelssohn's Wedding March, I looked up at him and said, in my way, "'What are you looking so sour about, you oakum-trimmed lobster? She doesn't kiss you. You don't have to sit on her lap and listen to talk that would make the book of a musical comedy sound like the maxims of Epictetus.' You ought to be thankful you're not a dog. Brace up, Benedict, and bid the blues be gone. The matrimonial mishap looked down at me with almost canine intelligence in his face. Why, doggy, says he, good doggy, you almost look like you could speak. What is it, doggy? Cats? Cats? Could speak? But of course he couldn't understand. Humans were denied the speech of animals. The only common ground of communication upon which dogs and men can get together is in fiction. In the flat across the hall from us lived a lady with a black and tan terrier. Her husband strung it and took it out every evening, but he always came home cheerful and whistling. One day I touched noses with a black and tan in the hall, and I struck him for an elucidation. See here, Wiggle and Skip, I says. You know that it ain't the nature of a real man to play dry nurse to a dog in public. I never saw one leashed to a bow-wow yet. That did look like he'd like to lick every other man that looked at him. But your boss comes in every day as perky and set up as an amateur prestidigitator doing the egg trick. How does he do it? Don't tell me he likes it. Him, says the black and tan. Why, he uses nature's own remedy. He gets spifflicated. At first, when he goes out, he's as shy as the man on the steamer who would rather play Pedro when they make them all jackpots. By the time we've been in eight saloons, he don't care whether the thing on the end of his line is a dog or a catfish. 
I've lost two inches of my tail trying to sidestep those swinging doors. The pointer I got from that terror. Vaudeville, please, copy. This set me to thinking. One evening, about six o'clock, my mistress ordered him to get busy and do the ozone act for lovey. I have concealed it until now, but that is what she called me. The black and tan was called tweetness. I consider that as I have the bulge on him as far as you could chase a rabbit. Still, lovey is something of a nomenclatural tin can on the tail of one's self-respect. At a quiet place on a safe street, I tightened the line of my custodian in front of an attractive, refined saloon. I made a dead-ahead scramble for the doors, whining like a dog in the press dispatches that lets the little family know that little Alice is bogged while gathering lilies in the brook. Why, darn my eyes, says the old man with a grin. Darn my eyes if the saffron-colored son of a seltzer lemonade ain't asking me in to take a drink. Let me see. How long's it been since I saved shoe leather by keeping one foot on the footrest? I believe I'll... I knew I had him. Hot scotches he took, sitting at a table. For an hour, he kept the Campbells coming. I sat by his side, rapping for the waiter with my tail, and eating free lunch, such as Mama in her flat never equaled with her homemade truck bought at a delicatessen store eight minutes before Papa comes home. When the products of Scotland were all exhausted except the rye bread, the old man unwound me from the table leg and played me outside like a fisherman plays a salmon. Out there he took off my collar and threw it into the street. Poor doggy, says he. Good doggy. She shan't kiss you any more. It's a darn shame. Good doggy. Go away and get run over by a streetcar and be happy. I refuse to leave. I leaped and frisked about the old man's legs, happy as a pug on a rug. You old flea-headed woodchuck chaser, I said to him. You moon-baying, rabbit-pointing, egg-stealing old beagle, can't you see that I don't want to leave you? Can't you see that we're both pups in the wood, and the missus is the cruel uncle after you with a dish towel, and me with the flea liniment and a pink bow to tie on my tail? Why not cut all that out and be pards forevermore? Maybe you'll say that he didn't understand. Maybe he didn't. But he kind of got a grip on the hot scotches and stood still for a minute, thinking, Doggy, says he, finally, we don't live more than a dozen lives on this earth, and very few of us live to be more than three hundred. If I see that flat any more, I'm a flat, and if you do, you're flatter, and that's no flattery. I'm offering sixty to one that westward ho wins out by the length of a dachshund. There was no string, but I frolicked along with my master to the 23rd Street Ferry, and the cats on the route saw reason to give thanks that prehensile claws had been given them. On the Jersey side, my master said to a stranger who stood eating a currant bun, In my doggy, we are bound for the Rocky Mountains. But what pleased me most was when my old man pulled both of my ears until I howled and said, You common monkey-headed, rat-tailed, sulfur-colored son of a doormat, do you know what I'm going to call you? I thought of lovey, and I whined dolefully. I'm going to call you Pete, says my master. And if I'd had five tails, I couldn't have done enough wagging to do justice to the occasion. Again, 
We love our dogs, and our dogs love us back unconditionally. If you want to make sure that your pet has as good a life as you, perhaps you should go get them some of the best products for their life. At Chewy.com, they've got everything you need for your pet. Enter BBJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing, for this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories to feature on the show. If you have one, email them, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Don't forget to give us a review on iTunes. It helps spread the word that we're putting people to sleep all over the country and around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>